We have come to the end of our look at Jonah and we are left with an interesting final chapter. But before we look at that, the book of Jonah has highlighted the complexity of human nature as we see it woven through the chapters and verses. The Jonah narrative focuses on the tension and relationship between shame, spirituality and personal transformation. And we have also looked at Abraham Maslow's phrase, the Jonah complex. And Maslow noted uh, in his book of human hierarchies uh, that the human condition, if given a choice, will evade personal growth. That we do fear our own greatness. That the mere thoughts of fulfilling our purpose brings up fears and shames and doubts and challenges which are easier to ignore rather than to embrace the sacredness of destiny. This condition is found throughout Scripture and is not just assigned to Jonah. We see it in Noah, we see it in Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, we see it in Moses, Gideon, and also in Jesus' disciples. All these, to some degree, resist the call and purpose of God in their lives because of doubt, shame, and sin. But Jesus highlights and addresses this human condition in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. The Jonah complex is typified in Jesus' account of the last servant who presents his only talent as he returns it to his master. The servant refused to invest his talent because of fear and shame and doubt. So let's take a couple of minutes just to get up to speed and do a quick review for those who perhaps haven't been with us during this time or for those who maybe just forgot what we did last week, maybe. Here we go. So far as in the first chapter, Jonah, the first three chapters, Jonah looks pretty bad, doesn't he? He receives clear instruction from God to go to Nineveh, but he runs. So in chapter one, God comes to Jonah and he's a renowned prophet who lived in the northern kingdom of Israel. He's renowned. He's mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. So the assignment that God gives Jonah is to go to, to Nineveh, which is in the northeast. Uh, Nineveh was the capital city of the epicenter of the, the Assyrian Empire. Now the Assyrians are an evil and cruel people. And God calls Jonah to go to these people who he and the nation of Israel absolutely hated. But Jonah does the exact opposite and he runs in the opposite direction. He runs to the port town of Joppa and asks the question, where is the end of the world and can I buy a ticket there? And he finds himself on a boat to Tarshish, hoping that he will soon be eating tapas and learning the tango on the Costa del Sol. So uh, for those who don't know, Tarshish is in Spain. God tries to get his attention with a storm, but he's asleep. God sends the pagan captain to convict him, but he doesn't listen. And then um, we see that God uses the pagan dice game to call him out. So he asks to be thrown overboard. Now in chapter 2 we see Jonah sinking to the bottom of the sea as he fades in and out of consciousness. But God graciously rescues him in the belly of a great fish. Now in chapter 3, finally after getting you know, spewed up on the beach and covered in fish vomit, Jonah gets the idea that there's no avoiding God. So he goes to Nineveh, he preaches a very lacklustre five-word sermon 
However, we see the entire city fall on its face before God. They repent of their sin and God relents from the promised disaster. So the last verse of chapter 3 where we left last week was in verse 10 and it says, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the disaster he had threatened. So here's where we pick up our story. But instead of getting better, it seems to get worse for Jonah in chapter 4. Verse 1 says, But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Here we learn of Jonah's initial motivation for for running from God. We see it in verse 2. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate. You are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So if you know your Bible, right here, Josh Jonah is quoting Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 to 7. He's trying to turn the tables on God. Jonah couldn't stand the thought of Nineveh being forgiven for its sins and accepted by God. Therefore, after leading one of the greatest, the greatest revivals in the history of the, of, of the world, with a simple half-hearted, half-baked, five-word sermon, Jonah becomes angry with God for offering grace and mercy to these wicked, violent unbelievers. So let's consider our first observation. Why is Jonah so angry? The reason he is so angry is that Jonah is self-righteous. He sees himself as more important than the Ninevites. He sees himself as better than the Ninevites. He sees himself uh, more deserving of God's grace and God's mercy. And so we see Jonah angry in self-righteousness. If any of this is going to make sense, we have to identify with Jonah in his self-righteousness. The dictionary definition of self-righteousness is being convinced of one's own righteousness, of one's own uprightness, correctness, rightness, in contrast to the actions and beliefs of others. In other words, it's easy to be self-righteous when we position ourselves against anyone or anything that is different to ourselves. Self-righteousness said, I am the bar of everything that is right in the world. But we would never say that, would we? Because that's a horrible thing to say. We would never say that. But in some way or form, we believe it. So let's take a test this morning. And that is, am I self-righteous test? The am I self-righteous test, okay? So here we go. If you don't think that you need to take this test, then you've already failed it, okay? (laughs) Number one, do you consider yourself better than others? Not everyone, just some people, yeah? Number two, do you downplay your sin while magnifying the sins of others? In other words, what I do is not so bad. At least I'm not as bad as them. (laughs) Number three, can you laugh at yourself? Not because you're cute or clever, but because you're ridiculous. Can you freely talk about your real faults? 
do you have all the right answers, at least most of the time? Do you actually listen to others, or are you quick to give an opinion and a smile? Have you ever said, at least, I'm not like that? Do you say, I'm a good person? Are you open to learning from anyone and everyone? Number 10, do you look down on those who struggle with sins that you don't struggle with? Number 11, can you receive critique and or correction humbly without growing angry or defensive? Number 12, do you think you deserve mercy from God while others don't? And number 13, over the course of these questions, did you think, I can't believe people are like that? <laughs> That's a pass if you did. If anyone was doing the mental arithmetic during the test, the conclusion would have to be we are all, in some measure or form, self-righteous. Romans 3.10 says, There is no one righteous, not even one. When we get into this game of comparing ourselves to one another to satisfy our lack and to build up ourselves, in our righteousness. The Apostle Paul tells us the only righteousness that is made available to us is that which is in Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he says, For he made, he, talking about Jesus, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And as Christians, our righteousness is in Jesus alone. Not in anything that we are, not in anything that we have, not in anything that we do. We need to feel this and fully identify with Jonah because the essence of self-righteousness is that there is always another party involved. For Jonah, the other party was Nineveh. So that brings us to our second observation. Who is your Nineveh? Who are the people that God is calling you to? and preach repentance, calling on them to believe in the same Jesus that you believe in. Is it family members? Is it parents? Is it brothers? Is it sisters? Is it cousins? Is it in-laws? Is it neighbours? Is it enemies? Someone that has betrayed you perhaps, hurt you or harmed you or slandered you or gossiped about you. We have to feel the weight of what Jonah is feeling. He hates the Ninevites. They have killed and massacred his people. But God is calling him to be an agent of mercy and grace. So the question is, who is your Nineveh? Jonah's problem is not theological. His problem is that he doesn't like God. He's happy to be an object of God's mercy. He, we, we learned that in chapter 2. He was uh, on the brink of death. But Jonah doesn't want to be an agent of the same mercy to others. And when we forget what we have been saved from, this is the unavoidable outcome because self-righteousness is always the result. The problem here is that Jonah has forgotten chapter 2. The time difference between chapter 2 and chapter 4 is roughly a month, probably just over. Jonah has forgotten God's great mercy and miraculous salvation. Bring us to observation number three, pride and self-righteousness. This is what happens to us when we forget or we don't acknowledge 
God's great mercy to us. What we have been saved from, what we are being saved from, when we don't believe or forget or don't acknowledge all is from God, our life will be filled will be filled with pride and self-righteousness. Because if God is not God, if God is not responsible for our transformation, for our change, for our growth, for our salvation, for our breath, for our gifts, for our skills, for our homes and friends and for our family, then who is? If it's you, then that's self-righteousness. And like Jonah, you are saying, I am the centre of my world. Verse 3, Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. The heat of the situation is revealing the idol of control. Jonah has no control over God, no control over the response of the Ninevites. He has no control over God's call and mission. He has no control over the words that come out of his mouth. He tried to preach a real sucky sermon and God still used that sermon, that five-word sucky sermon, and dropped the city to its knees. Jonah has no control and he would rather not live in a world where God just dispenses mercy and repentance to all. And if we are honest, we might find insights and parallels in our own lives and relationships. So let's look at our fourth observation with the question, what thing in your life, if taken away, would make you feel unworthy? It would make you feel like Jonah, that life was meaningless and not worth living. For Jonah, it's control. And that brought him, his control brought him his happiness, control brought him his contentment. What happens is, we take good things. It's good to exercise influence in your life. It's good to plan. It's good to enjoy family and friends. It's good to have a good reputation with outsiders. It's good to do a lot of things in our lives and through our lives and with our lives. And we take good things... And we slowly elevate them to the ultimate thing. As ultimate things, when they are crushed or when they are removed out of our life, like with Jonah, when the ultimate thing in his life was crushed and taken from him, he wanted to die. And we do the same thing when we say, yeah, I believe that Jesus saved me, but this, this is what makes me really happy. Whatever this is in air quotes. Yeah, I believe Jesus died for me, but this over here is what makes me feel worthy. This is what gives me acceptance. This is what gives me joy, contentment and value. And we do this with so many things in our lives. Jonah's life is like a mirror reflecting on our own back for afflicting our own lives back on us. Jonah is saying, I have to be in control to be happy and, make, and, and, and be a worthwhile person. I need to be in control. And we can just take uh, the blank and fill that in, can't we? I have to succeed to be happy and a worthwhile person. I have to perform well to be a happy and worthwhile person. I have to have these type of relationships 
to be happy and a worthwhile person. And the list goes on and on and on. And what happens is that we elevate these things to the ultimate thing in our life. And when we don't have the control, the relationship, the comfort, the performance, the success that we desire, that we define as making ourselves worthy and, and, and a happy person, then we feel that our life is no longer valuable. And this is a real feeling. This is a real feeling. It's not melodramatic. It's not over-emotional. It's a real feeling. And it was a real feeling in Jonah's life. He is saying, I don't want to live in a world like this. Now, Jonah's idea of happiness was that his enemies were going to hell. That's a fairly, fairly uh, outrageous uh, uh, you know, definition of happiness. You know, that was his happiness. He would be happy if God demonstrated judgment on the city. He would be happy if Nineveh did not repent. He would have been happy if, they, if he could have stayed in his own hometown, minding his own, own, own business. All these things were, were swept away and now he's in a foreign land and God is doing everything that Jonah doesn't want him to do and Jonah is upset and would rather be part, but not be a part of anything. In fact, the scripture says he wants to die. The only happiness, value and acceptance, worth uh, and worth that will ever that will never fail us this morning, that will never leave us this morning, that will never forsake us this morning, is Jesus Christ. Everything else is building our lives on shifting sand. And when the storms of life come, all that is not built on the rock that is Jesus, the faith that we have in Jesus, will be washed away. We can't just leave it there. The big question is what will we do with our idols? Now Jonah is not at a point of dealing with his idol, but what do we do? What do we do? Verse 4. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? So that brings us to our fifth observation. observation. There are two ways to deal with idols. The first one, just don't do it. Don't place your worth or your value or your comfort or your control or all of these and all of those potential ultimate things ahead of Jesus. Just don't do it. Just don't put any of those things ahead of Jesus. Don't do it. The second option is to love something of greater value with greater intensity so that everything else falls away at its feet. The first one is behavioural modification. However, that doesn't address the primary issue because our hearts want the heart wants to love and it needs to love something. The second one is how do we crush idols in our life? We do it by loving Jesus with a greater intensity than anything else. Making Jesus the God of our life. Not because because he because, because if he's not this morning, something else will be. One man said these words, he says we know of no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of our heart than to keep in our hearts the love of God. And no other way by which to keep our hearts in the love of God than building ourselves up in the most holy faith. If our goal is not Jesus, then we are prone to love something else. 
We can see that Jonah is not doing that. We can see that Jonah is, is not doing that. He, he has allowed his desire to control to slip into that ultimate spot. Verses 5 to 8 says, Jonah went out and sat at the same, at the place, sorry, Jonah went out and sat down at the place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine, and it grew up over, it grew up over Jonah to give shade to his head and ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided the scorching east wind, east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better, it would be better for me to die than to live. Now there's 120,000 people that didn't know their right hand from their left, the scripture says. People who are spiritually lost, people who don't know the way, people who don't know the truth about God and who He is. And our God sees all this and has compassion on them. Yes, He sees their wickedness. He sees it better than we do. A gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. This is how God sees Nineveh. We might be closer to loving people as God does if we begin to try to see people as God sees them. Why did God love Nineveh? Because they were God's creation. That's what the story about the plant is all about. God patiently and graciously uses a series of questions and object lessons to point out Jonah's great self-centeredness and, and self-righteousness Jonah is more concerned for a mere plant and his comfort than the souls of an entire city. Jonah's heart is revealed here. Jonah likes the blessing of God when it's in his favour. And that leads us to our seventh observation. What are the shady plants in your life that you are more concerned with than getting to know the love of Jesus. Verses 9 to 11. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? So Jonah is angrier than ever, angry enough to die again. God points out that Jonah is angry at nothing. He has no ownership of the plant. He didn't tend the plant. He didn't water the plant. He didn't labour for the plant at all. The only relationship Jonah and the plant had was that it benefited him. And this is where his compassion is found, wrapped up around his self-centeredness, his self-righteousness and his preferences. So God's point is how much more should we have compassion over a whole city of people, hundreds and thousands, 
which are his creation, which labor, which God labored for and labors for, and people that are created in the image of God, even though the image in this particular situation is horribly marred by sin. God is showing Jonah with the plant object lesson that all things are a means to God's end, not ours. Not ours. A means to God's end, not ours. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38 says, Jesus went out to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. That God sees our community. We know that. God sees our community. Even the very surrounding neighbourhoods where we're sitting now, God sees our neighbourhoods. That God sees the people that we live amongst like a field that's ready for harvest. That's how God sees our neighbourhoods. All that is needed is labourers to come out and work in the fields. This is the heart of God. This is how God sees the people that he has called us to live amongst. So the final and eighth observation this morning is, are we those labourers? Are we those labourers? That's what God called Jonah to be, and that's what Jesus has called his disciples to be. Do we have the heart of God to the people that we live among, or do we just exist in various places? Places where we buy food, places in our neighbourhood, places in our street where we live. Or do we have a heart towards people, the people that God has called us to live amongst? Do we have compassion for people? Or otherwise, who, who otherwise don't deserve it? <coughs> Do we know and feel that, that we are no different than the ones who live in this city? We can get into a, a mentality that says, well, nobody seems to be coming to the Lord. Society only seems to be getting worse and worse. And we are spiralling down. Or we could say, I think the fields are still ripe. I think that God is still in the business of seeking and saving the lost. Now, many times we see the big picture without the labourers. It's always someone else in that big picture that's labouring and loving and compassionate. So here's where the rubber meets the road this morning as we close. I would like to leave you a challenge at the end of this Jonah study that we've been doing for four weeks. I would like to leave you with a challenge. Who are the three to five people that are in your life, your Nineveh, who God wants you to love and pray for and point to Jesus? Who are those three to five people in your life? Who are they? Are they family members? Are they neighbours? Who are they? Because this is the heart behind the church that Jesus established 2,000 years ago. It's to be on mission with God right here in our own Nineveh. Please pray with me.
Father God, do a work in our hearts and challenge us as you did with Jonah. Show us our idols, show us our selfishness, so that we may be more like your son Jesus. Change our hearts to hearts for compassion, that we might replicate your heart for the people of this city. Don't let us be stuck in the cycle of sin, returning and repeating to sinful habits. Don't let us be people who elevate our idol to a place higher than we sh- that it should be. But we want to be a people of compassion and a people that have a heart for your community as you do. And Father, we pray this for the sake of your Son, Jesus, our Christ and our Lord.